I was just thinking in this week leading up to, to Christmas that probably the older I get, the more I appreciate the presence of my family. Not the gifts, but their presence at, at Christmas. That the things don't really matter nearly so much, but them. You know, I, I, what I really want is them. I want to be with them. I want to be around them. And I guess the more uh, that grows in me, and let me say this just as a qualifier as I say that, because some of my family's here and some are not here and will be listening to that message, that doesn't let you off the hook for shopping this week. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm still being sanctified here, so it's not completely gone that I want some things. But primarily what I want is you. And it's, it's helping begin, me begin to understand more and more that the greatest gift that God can give the greatest gift that he offers us is himself. He gives many gifts, an innumerable number of gifts to his children. He's generous that way. And, and so many different blessings. But none of those gifts will ever satisfy us in themselves if we don't treasure him above all things. If God is not the great good. Today as we revisit the gospel, as we consider Isaiah 53 and the great chapter, one of the mountain peak chapters in the Bible describing, defining, declaring the atonement for us, let's not forget that the great gift that the gospel promises, the good news of the gospel, is that those who place their faith in Jesus get God himself. That we get to know him. He becomes our father. And we have the promise one day of seeing him face to face knowing Him even as we're known by Him. And then we enter into all the blessings of Him that are made glorious because He's there, because of God Himself. Will you pray with me this morning? Father, I want nothing more today than to bring You glory through the declaration of Your Word and the story of Your Son and Your generosity, Your grace, Your power in saving us. Father, I pray that you'd make an old story new and fresh again for us who've heard it, who've responded to it, who cherish it, who trust in it. I pray, Father, for those who've not heard it or maybe have heard it a number of times but have never, never responded to it, never felt the worth of Christ, never felt the weight of sin, never seen clearly the way out and the gift that you offer us in the gospel, I pray that today they would. In seeing your glory, they would believe. And Father, as we have prayed today, I pray that in our giving and in our singing and declaring, and I pray that in our witness when we leave this place, that not only the people gathered here and those who hear this message this morning will bring you glory. But Lord, so many more in our city, our nation, beyond. May the nations glorify you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our text is Isaiah 53, verses 10 through 12, as we wrap up this, this great passage of Scripture from the end of chapter 52 to conclusion of chapter 53. The verse that sets up verse 10 necessarily, if you have your Bible in front of you, you can look it up, Isaiah 53, verse 9 says, They made his grave with the wicked, with the rich man in his death, though he'd done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. The context is this, Christ has died. An innocent man has died. And in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, he's died in a certain way that says, this is the one, this is the promised one. 
This is the Messiah. But as we think about his death, consider the weight of verse 10. Jesus who died, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Before I read any other verses, for those of you who are taking some notes or making some notations in your Bible, consider how often you see the emphatic shall in this passage. The promise of God to do what he says he'll do. To carry about our salvation. He shall, he shall, he shall. Verse 11, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many, and he makes intercession for the transgressors. I want to answer these big questions for you today as we talk about the salvation that comes to us from the Lord. How is anyone saved? Only by the Lord. Where in is our salvation? Only from the Lord. No one saves themselves. No one earns their own salvation. No one overcomes their own evil with future good. No one accrues for themselves enough credits to merit the favor of God in final judgment. If we are to be saved, it's by the grace and mercy of God. But it begs a question for us in this. What are we saved from? We use the word salvation, which certainly connotates a rescue, a deliverance. What are we being delivered from? Rescued from what? Ultimately, we're being saved from the very wrath of God, poured out righteously because of our sin. We're being saved from our sin and the judgment that accompanies it. But not only the sin, we're saved from the suffering that accompanies that sin. As we see these emphatic terms in Isaiah 53, we see how the suffering servant takes on the pain of, of sin ultimately the great pain of his suffering was the separation from the father in that moment my god my god why have you forsaken me sin suffering and for those who don't yet realize that our salvation saves us from the tyranny of ourselves we make terrible rulers we make terrible gods life lived after our own passions following our own hearts doing what we want pleasing us is ultimately we know this personally to some degree we know this outside of ourselves, maybe to a greater degree from the people that we know, but we know it certainly biblically to follow our own hearts brings about nothing but our own destruction and despair. So to be saved from self and sin and suffering is a gift of the gospel. How then are we saved? God doesn't simply condone. He doesn't simply pass over. He doesn't simply dismiss with his own terms or his own justice or his own holiness. But God saves us by sacrifice. The system we saw beginning to foreshadow the death of Christ on the cross unfolding in the Old Testament shows us the weight of sin, the cost of sin, blood signifying death, but a sacrifice was made, an atonement made by a sin bearer, one who takes on our sin, steps into our place, sacrifice, sin bearing, substitution is the means by which we're saved. And then what are we saved for? Why are you saved? For those of you in this room that are believers in Jesus Christ, what have you been saved for? Not just for a better life, not just for more self-fulfillment. Not so you might have the good things that God promises those who are His, that you might be gratified 
that, that your desires might be met. The same sort of desires that you might seek apart from God, and now you get them because of God. That's not what our salvation is ultimately about. We're saved ultimately for God himself, for his pleasure. We sang of being ransomed. We're not our own. We've been bought with a price. Therefore, we glorify God, the Bible says. We are his, his special possession. We are for his pleasure. And as a result, he grants us his peace. He shares with us his perfect joy. He invites us into his love. And this is what our salvation is for. I love this statement in the cross of Christ. This is the book I recommended to you last week, by the way. John Stott says, God took his own loving initiative to appease his own righteous anger by bearing it in his own self, in his own son, when he took our place and died for us. That's our salvation. This morning, I want to, for the sake of worship, to stir up your worship, your passion for Christ, to declare his glory to make much of christ on the cross i want to declare to you these four emphatic truths not simply for knowledge knowledge puffs up the bible says wisdom edifies the wisdom of the right use of this is worship that we might see god as he is and say wow i want you to be blown away this morning with the goodness of god on the cross and i want to make these four statements to you to help accomplish that number one write these down if you would today Number one, though perpetrated by men, I mean, this part is clear. We can see this in history. We see this in the gospel accounts. We see how the story unfolded. Though perpetrated by men, the cross of Christ was planned by God. Now consider this for a moment. What caused Jesus' death on the cross? Was it the political climate in which he lived? Was it the religious tensions that he faced and addressed? Was it the betrayal of someone like Judas? Was it the jealousy of the high priest or the religious order? Was it the, the anger of a crowd that considered him a blasphemer because he claimed to be God? Was it the violent nature of the oppressive Romans? All these secondary causes, all these instruments in the divine hand of providence carrying out the plan that God has for himself. Isaiah 53.10 says, It was the will of the Lord to crush him. Now, if you've never heard that before, that might be a staggering concept. God intended this. This is what God wanted to happen. When you look at the cross, you say, God planned that? And the Bible makes it emphatically clear that the answer is yes. This was God's plan from the beginning. Octavius Winslow sums this up beautifully in this statement. Who delivered up Jesus to die? Not Judas for money, not Pilate for fear, not the Jews for envy, but the Father for love. Again, in the book, The Cross of Christ, Stott reminds us of what the cross teaches us itself, at least these three essential elements, that first, our sin must be extremely horrible. We all should see that sin is extremely horrible. Nothing reveals the gravity of sin like the cross. Second, God's love must be wonderful beyond comprehension. Why? Because God could have justly abandoned us to our fate. God could have maintained His righteousness, His holiness. He could have preserved His character, His essence. He could have abandoned us to our fate. He could have left us alone to reap the fruit of wrongdoing. He could have left us to perish in our sins. This is what we deserved. But He did not. Because He loved us, He came after us. He purposed to save us. And number three, Christ's salvation must necessarily then be a free gift for us. 
because it was purchased for us at the high price of the blood of Christ. What's left to pay? Nothing. What could possibly add to the worth of Christ? And when Jesus claimed that it's finished, there's nothing left to contribute. Consider some of these texts that show us the heart of God in our salvation, His plan and purpose. When Peter's preaching the gospel right after Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, verse 23, he says this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. We know what happened, but here's why it happened. In Acts 4, 28, he speaks again of the gospel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. This was the plan of God, predetermined. Or what about 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18 and 20? Here's how you were saved. Knowing you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. You're not rescued by the old sacrificial system, and you can't buy your way out of judgment for sin. So you're saved how? By Christ's blood. Verse 20, He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. God's plan to save us through Christ has always been His plan. He manifested it in time. Or consider Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, to which, with which He's blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. God was wise, insightful, intentional. Verse 9, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. Always God's plan. Or as Paul writes so succinctly, Titus chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. Paul, a servant of God and apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. Verse 2, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. And this was the plan and purpose of God out of love for us. Before time began, God's heart of love for His people, future tense, would be carried out in Christ. We know that this was the plan and purpose of God. We also know that the sacrificial, number two, the sacrificial work of Christ on the cross, the sacrificial death of guiltless Jesus brings life to repentant and guilty me. If we're saved from our sins that bring about the wrath of God, we're saved from the suffering that our sins entail, we're we're saved from the rule of ourselves because of sin, If the sacrifice of Christ applies to us, we receive it with repentance. And the death of the guiltless saves the guilty who are repentant. Isaiah 53, verse 10 says this, He shall see his offspring. That was the promise to the suffering servant, that there will be offspring. It's a promise of the effective work of Christ on the cross. He will have sons and daughters. He will. His death will not be futile. It will not be in vain. He will have offspring. 1 Peter 2.24 says, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree. 
that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. It's done. You've, he did it. Hebrews 9, 28, Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many. Or 2 Corinthians 5, 21, for our sake, he, that's God, made him, that's Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we, the guilty, might become the righteousness of God. On the cross, we see the sacrificial work of the guiltless one bringing life to the guilty through their repentance. How did he do this? Again, as we look back over the scope of Isaiah 53, we see it was a perfect substitution. Perfect. God offered himself on the cross. The only sufficient means to pay for the sins of the innumerable. The sins of many. He offered himself. It's not simply the exchange of one who sort of, who appears to, who symbolically stands in our place. It's not merely a man on that cross, it's the God-man, the perfect sacrifice, the perfect substitute, Jesus himself. He was the perfect sin-bearer. He bore our sins is what Isaiah teaches. It is what the Gospels reveal. He bore our sins. He took them on as if they were his on. And, and God treated his son as if he were the culmination of the worst of all of us so that all of us who repent and place our faith in him can be treated collectively as if we were the best, his son. He's the perfect sin bearer. And because he bore our sin, because he stood in our place, we receive perfect righteousness. Perfect righteousness. If this is brand new to you and it sounds a bit technical, this is the only way anybody can ever be saved. Our human ideas of justice look something like those scales that we envision in our mind. Good and bad on either side. Things we shouldn't have done versus things we know we should have or things we have done well. As if they'll somehow be measured one against the other. And the preponderance of the evidence will lead to a conclusion by the judge, but that's not what justice is for sin deserves death that's its penalty and we're all guilty before him how can we stand before a god who's perfectly holy perfectly just perfectly righteous with any hope whatsoever we must be righteous ourselves how can we be righteous who weren't righteous the simple question is how do you unsin one cannot there must be an exchange my unrighteousness poured out on him and treated as such in judgment and his righteousness given to me so that when I stand before the Father, He sees me as not guilty me, but guiltless Him. And He treats me as His Son. Number three, the success of the cross was never in question. Jesus was satisfied with what He accomplished. I want to challenge you as you go back and revisit these texts on your own and read them in the flow, the natural flow and context, beginning at the end of Isaiah 52 starting around verse 10 and reading through Isaiah 53. And one thing I think you will see clearly in the text is that the success of the suffering servant is critically necessary. It's woven through all the words. To the human eye, Jesus is only remarkable for the amount of suffering He endured, for the injustice inflicted upon Him, for the, for the amount of pain that He received. But from a heavenly perspective, granted to us, through the biblical perspective, we can see him for who he is. Who do we see in Isaiah 52 and Isaiah 53? We see the revelation of Jesus throughout Isaiah. He is the arm of God, strong to save. 
He's the arm of Yahweh revealed in Isaiah 51, verses 9 through 10. Listen to these words. Awake, wake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in days of old, the generations of long ago. Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to pass over? Who parted the seas for the redemption of Israel from the captivity of Egypt? It was Yahweh, God himself. God did this. Who is this arm, this powerful arm, able to save us, being revealed in Isaiah 53? It's Jesus. Isaiah 52, verse 10. The Lord has bared His holy arm before the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. He is able to save. He is Yahweh, strong to save, mighty to save. When we see Jesus, we see the saving arm of God. And so the promised success we saw in Isaiah 52, 13, that He will succeed. He will prosper. He will accomplish the purpose which He was sent. That promised success matches the great cry from the cross in John 19.30 when Jesus said, It is finished. My arm is strong to save. Isaiah 53.11 says, Out of the anguish of His soul, He shall see and be satisfied. By His knowledge shall the righteous one, My servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and He shall bear, shall bear their iniquities. He shall. He does what He intended to do. And when Christ bears your iniquities, there is no more payment nor penalty to bear. It is born. So if the success of the cross was never in question and Jesus was satisfied with what He accomplished, what did He accomplish? What did He accomplish? The great aim of the cross. In fact, the great aim of our salvation. The great aim of the work of Christ in every regard is the glory of the Father. Our salvation is the ultimate means to the ultimate end. And that's the glory of God forever and forever and ever. When you and I are in eternity, and we're in the presence of the Father, what will be the ultimate result? He will forever receive the glory for what He's done for us. And the great means of that everlasting glory is the work of Christ on the cross. Listen to what Jesus said. Jesus says, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. The Father knows me, I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. Verse 17 of John 15 says, for this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. For this reason the Father loves me that I die. What is he saying here? He's saying, I'm acting as an agent of the love of the Father. The Father delights in saving us. He delights in saving us. It is to the joy, the pleasure, and the glory of the Father that He saves us. And so when Jesus accomplishes our salvation, He brings glory to the Father. And again, the Gospels are clear that everything that Jesus does is to this end. Everything is for this purpose. His revelation, His incarnation, the birth of Christ, not described in physical terms, but spiritual ones in the Gospel of John. In John chapter 1, verse 14, it says the Word... Jesus, became flesh, dwelt among us, and we've seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. What does that mean? Jesus came into the world in flesh, and we saw glory. But it wasn't just human glory. It wasn't the glory of a spectacular man or superior man. It was the glory of a God-revealing man. 
They saw something supernatural there in His glory, the glory of the Father, the clearest display of God's glory for the Scriptures is in Christ. And the pinnacle of the display of God's glory in Christ is in His death and in His resurrection. Actually, I would say in His perfect life in sinless death and physical resurrection. In this, the Father is glorified. Ultimately, we could say this. The Son glorifies the Father by completing the work the Father sent Him to do. So when, John, when Jesus prays in the Gospel of John, chapter 17, what does He pray? I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Not attempted, but accomplished. And what is that great work? It's the salvation of a people. The great work of the Son sent by the Father is to save a people numerous and certain. The Son comes down from heaven to glorify the Father by doing His will, and that will is to save those whom the Father had given Him. These are the words of Jesus in the Gospel of John. Again, backing up to a text we were in just a few weeks ago, Isaiah 53, 4, Surely He has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God, afflicted. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With His wounds we're healed. And then consider this great salvation metaphor. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to His own way, and the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. The many saved by the certain work of Christ in verses 10-12 through 12 are the sheep straying in verses 4-6. through 6. These are the ones, we are the ones, for whom the suffering servant makes atonement and applies that atonement. It's a continuous thought. I came for these sheep, and not just these sheep of Israel, but outside this fold also. Consider Jesus' words about sheep in John chapter 6. Starting in verse 37, he says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I'll never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he's given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I'll raise him up on the last day. A few verses after, in verse 44, he says, And no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I'll raise him up on the last day. What conclusions do we make from that? The Father gives to His people, gives to His Son a people. These people ultimately, by the way, in Revelation, will become His bride. And they'll celebrate that union we have with Him forever. The Son comes from heaven to do the Father's will. The Father's will is for the Son to lose none, but raise them on the last day. These people that will come to Him, that He'll raise, come to Him by looking on Him. They look and they believe. When they believe, the Son gives them eternal life. Those whom He gives eternal life, He'll raise on the last day, and no one can come unless the Father draws. This is the work the Son came to accomplish. All for ultimately this, His own exaltation. Not only the pleasure of the Father and the salvation of a people, but the exaltation of a Son. A Son before whom all the world will ultimately bow. All the world will ultimately acknowledge that He is in fact the strong arm of God able to say that He is, in fact, the Savior, the King. Here's the promise of Philippians chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. 
being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We know that's incarnation, that's sacrifice, that's the story of atonement. Therefore, because of that, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So in that great day, that day of the coming of the Lord, the great day of his revealing, the Son will be honored for accomplishing the Father's will. So what Revelation 5 verses 9 through 12 teaches us, they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And the Son accomplished these things. He satisfied the will of the Father. He saved for Himself an innumerable, specific people. And as a result of accomplishing this, He will be honored as King of kings and Lord of lords for all eternity. But for our purposes today in Isaiah 53, as we look back on what He's done and look ahead to what is to come, we have to be reminded of this truth. The king must die before he reigns. The king must die before he reigns. I remember reading that statement in a pithy little book called God is the Gospel by John Piper. And his explanation to that statement makes all the sense in the world to me. The king must die before he reigns, otherwise the justice of his reign would only bring judgment and not salvation. All the kingdom blessings in the Gospels had to be purchased by the blood of Christ. Why did Jesus have to die before he reigns? If Jesus simply returns as conquering king, there is but one choice to be made, and that's judge, judgment based on justice. Holiness applied. But Jesus who came and died for our sins applies mercy and love so that in his return, perfect justice is his. He must die before he reigns. It's your final reminder today that Jesus is king. Not because he was simply named as such, appointed as such. Not simply because he claims the title as such. Jesus is king because he conquered his and our enemies. He's a conquering king. He's a king by right. He's a king because he won. He's a king because there are no enemies remaining. He's a king because he stands victorious. That's what Isaiah 53 verse 12 is talking about when it says, I will divide him a portion with the many and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Why? Because what you see in Isaiah 53 is only a servant suffering grievously, but what you must see is a king returning victoriously. He will win. Crushed, yes, victorious, absolutely. Christ Jesus himself becomes our victory. He faces down sin. When we get to the Gospel of Matthew, very early on, we see Jesus taken off into the wilderness and He's tempted by Satan. He's tempted. 
And he doesn't succumb. And, and we might only partially apply that, or we might rightly partially apply that by saying, here's a methodology for fighting temptation, and it wouldn't be incorrect. You've probably heard sermons like that. Jesus is off in the wilderness, he's facing the enemy, and what does he do? He uses scripture, and we could talk about methodology here. There's something far deeper in play there. It's a cosmic battle of good and evil, and for our sake, he faces Satan. He faces the temptation to sin. He doesn't succumb, and he wins on the battlefield. When he's crucified for us, he'll be crucified as a sinless substitute. Not a sinful one. And he'll destroy the work of Satan, which is death because of sin. He is our victory. That's what the Bible teaches us. By faith, he's our victory. So that sin no longer has victory over us. Death no longer has dominion over us. There is no sting because of Christ. We're his victory. He's our victory. And we are his spoil. We are his spoil. The conquering king has come in and he's taken us. He's rescued us. He's ransomed us. One day he'll rapture us. He'll come and take us to be with him so that we can be with him where he is. We are his spoil. We belong fully to him and we owe him our full allegiance. That's the gospel. That's the gift of the gospel. Sure, there are many benefits. Innumerable blessings of the gospel. But the great gift of the gospel is that we who once denied him, we who once rebelled against him, we who deserved every penalty given by him in righteousness because of sin, instead receive him and all the blessings of him. This is the promised good news of the gospel. What is your worshipful response to that? Will you do what I challenge many to do several weeks ago, will you look on this beautiful news and believe and say, yes, thank you, God. Thank you, God, for a love that's deeper than I could have ever comprehended. Thank you, God, for a plan more beautiful, more powerful than I ever understood. Thank you, God, for a promise, an end result so much bigger than I could ever even begin to imagine. Look on Him. Believe and be saved. Will you do that today? If you're a Christian, it's easy. You know the response. Man, this is worship. This is worship. Thank you, God, for saving me. Begin now to sing the song of eternity, which is thank you. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray that you will be much glorified in the telling of the story of your Son. Just as you were glorified in the work of your Son. Just as that we will glory one day in the perfect revelation of you in eternity. Father, now as we retell, as we sing, as we consider, as we praise the story of your salvation, be glorified. And Father, in that glory, as you are made so much of, Father, I pray that someone today would look on you, look on Christ, look on the cross, look on what you have said and what you have done, look on what you have given and what you have promised, 
and in seeing they would believe. And today with a changed heart, with a renewed mind, with a transformed life, with a different future, Father, they would become your children forever and ever. I pray that would happen today. And Father, for those of us who are yours, the, the sheep that you rescued, the lost sheep that you came to save, the ones that you redeemed with the blood of Jesus, your Son, our Savior. Oh, Father, I pray that we would sing your praise. And not just sing it in the moment. But Father, as we, as we leave here, this would be our cause of worship. This would be our cause of, of allegiance. This would be the fuel of all of our affection for you, our faithfulness to you. And Father, you'd be glorified in us. Father, we thank you for the greatness of our salvation. We thank you for the arm of the Lord, mighty to save. And we praise him today. In Jesus' name, amen.